to the beautiful and deeper parts of ourselves and parts of life, when we feel connected with uh, our own love, our own inspiration, our wisdom, when we have a perspective in which we um, feel quite empowered. There are also times when it's as it were that 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 quality of the sun, if we want to call that contact with the beautiful and the power, the wisdom, the love, when that quality of the sun is um, covered over by clouds, when we don't feel so much in contact with our inspiration or our deeper perspective or our sense of our own power. And often we actually feel that on the first day or two of a retreat, (laughs) that we often can feel, and it can be confusing, that we don't feel so connected with even possibly why we came here. We may have come here in order to find uh, a deeper quality of peace or ease or perspective or wisdom or, or love. And sometimes instead of feeling that, we feel what? We feel, um, we feel the insistent knee pain or we feel the aversion to a fellow retreatant making too much noise in the hall, or we feel a, um, a strong desire for chocolate. <laughs> this appears to be the most common. <laughs> yeah. or, we, or we may have doubt about ourselves. We may have said, well, um, maybe I'm not such a good meditator. Maybe I should, you know, go back to Sufi dancing or, or this is the second day. It's an eight-day retreat. Help! <laughs> Some of us may have, may have felt that. And, um, and even to the point where we forget or lose contact with uh, that uh, sense of wisdom or power or beauty or or love. Teachings of the Buddha and probably most most and many great spiritual traditions contain the affirmation that the quality of the beauty, the wisdom, the love is the deeper parts of our is the deeper part of ourselves. And yet they all acknowledge it gets covered over. It gets covered over by clouds, by the clouds that take the form of some of what I've mentioned and some of what which uh, has been reported in the groups today, some of which we know. It may feel like the clouds are parting a little bit now, the end of the second. I know that's actually happening for quite a few people. But still, it's, it's challenging. And so what I want to... Uh, explore today are particularly the nature of some of these clouds that cover over uh, our deeper aspirations, our love, and so forth. Another way of saying it is it's, it's looking at the ways we get stuck, both in retreat and out of retreat. And that's, that, that is, what the, is the theme that I'd like to explore today. And I'd like to do it especially through using the structure of a traditional Buddhist teaching, a traditional teaching of the Buddha, which could be translated as the five difficult energies. The, the term in Pali is nivarana, and it's sometimes translated as hindrances. And I prefer difficult energies because it, it and I think that's actually closer to the uh, etymology of the, of the uh, word in the uh, Asian language. And so I'd like, to, I'd like to really explore that and how we work with uh, several different ways of getting stuck, of there being clouds. And I'd like to uh, do this particularly through 
using for each of the five a short reading from a wonderful book actually by a friend of mine called The Book of Qualities by Ruth Gendler. Does anyone know this book? Yeah. It's, it's a wonderful book. It actually is, uh, I think there are some 60 plus qualities that we embody and they're the whole range. Uh, pleasure, worry, fear, patience, confusion, loneliness, despair, judgment, discipline, courage, anxiety, and so forth. And, and for each of those qualities, she develops a human personality and a character that is named after one of the qualities. So she'll give a snapshot image of fear. You know, fear wears dark moccasins and goes out at night and sneaks up on people <laughs> or something like that. You know, and, and so what I'll do is I'll read um, for each of the five difficult energies, I'll read one of the qualities that comes closest to it. And I think before doing that, though, I want to read a short poem by uh, Pablo Neruda, which is really a poem about how we work with difficulties or stuckness in general. It's a short poem. And it's actually one of my favorites, even though it's really short. So maybe I'll read it twice just in case the first time (laughs) goes by quickly. So so think about this as uh, having to do with how we work in general with difficulties or stuckness. If each day falls inside each night, there exists a well where clarity is imprisoned. We need to sit on the rim of the well of darkness and fish for fallen light with patience. Some of us the last two days have been sitting on the rim of the well of darkness. (laughs) A little bit. If each day falls inside each night, there exists a well where clarity is imprisoned, we need to sit on the rim of the well of darkness and fish for fallen light with patience. It's interesting in the context of this retreat being called Cultivating Clear Seeing, Opening the Heart. We're really tonight looking at what makes clear seeing or opening the heart difficult. And So what I'll do is I'll go through each of them and I'll give for each of them a number of practical ways to work with the difficulties. And the the difficulties are first a kind of compulsive desire, second a kind of compulsive aversion or trying to push away, third uh, sloth and torpor, sleepiness and so forth, and uh, fourth restlessness and, and remorse, particularly the quality of restlessness I'll be addressing. And the fifth is doubt, particularly doubt about oneself or doubt about what one's doing. So the, the, the first I'll read is uh, compulsive desire. And I'll read, I'll read uh, Ruth Gendler's description of greed. So this, this will be fairly close to compulsive desire. Greed is lonely and impulsive. He eats his food quickly and can't remember what it tastes like. He wants to make things stand still so he can understand, but he is always running somewhere himself. He was very cold as a child, and he still fears that he will never be warm enough. Greed is a tyrannical boss. He needs a reason for everything, He used to disguise his temper with a thin layer of politeness. Since he has become rich and famous, he doesn't bother with amenities. He masks his fear of women with contempt. He exports nightmares on the international commodities market. An advertising executive turned pornographer of the soul. Fairly... Intense right up there. (laughs) 
He exports nightmares on the international commodities market and advertising executive turned pornographer of the soul. So that's, that's the extreme version of compulsive desire. <laughs> so, but it, it, it gives some of the flavor, particularly that, that impulsive quality and the quality that there's really, in some ways, not really consciousness. Greed doesn't taste his food, it says. And so for, for us, it's something really to look at. It's really to look at the <clears throat> quality of desire, particularly that feels compulsive or impulsive. And in general, um, it's something that in Buddhist practice is really uh, uh, suggested that we look carefully at the nature of that kind of compulsive desire, which keeps us in some ways grasping after things and takes away, in a sense, from, a, from, a, from our peace. And it's important in saying that to, uh, to say that it's not so much uh, desire itself that's the problem, but that quality of compulsivity, which comes with a certain amount of unconsciousness, that we all have certain amounts of desire. We wouldn't be at this retreat without desire. We probably wouldn't do a lot of things without desire, but it's the compulsive quality that, that we want to look at. And in fact, in, in Buddhist teachings, there's a quality of what we might call healthy desire, which is uh, chanda, which is taken to be, again, a lot of the problems are with the translations, with the translations uh, into English, uh, where desire means all sorts of things. But the, the, the problem that we're looking at is, or the quality that is problematic is, has this strong compulsive quality. Chanda it can be the aspiration to awaken or the aspiration to help someone. And in a sense, that can be a kind of desire. And in the Pali language, there are different words, whereas in English, we just have the one word. So it can be confusing. So what is the, what is the particular problem with a kind of compulsive desire? First of all, it's unconscious. And Typically, if we look carefully, it can lead uh, quite often to a kind of suffering. And, you, and many of you know that in the, in the Buddhist teachings, the root cause of suffering is taken to be a kind of grasping, which again has that quality of being unconscious. That it's, and it probably is, is uh, seen most clearly when we look actually to, to, to the quality that we call greed. Uh, to, to look for what is problematic about this kind of unconscious grasping after what we want. And um, about six or seven years ago, um, my friend Diana Winston and I uh, taught a class um, called Greed Management. <laughs> we actually didn't have very many people sign up. <laughs> and I don't know if that is because... I suspect it's because people didn't want to explore it. Uh, but we nonetheless, we had enough people and we, 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 we worked with the class for, we had a five-week class on greed management. And the, um, the fine, we had a final exam and a culmination of the class, which was when we, this was right at a time, those of you who know the East Bay uh, may know that there is in El Cerrito, there's a Bed, Bath, and Beyond store. And we happened to be finishing the class right the week that Bed, Bath, and Beyond was opening. It was about six or seven years ago. And so our final exam was to do walking meditation in the newly opened <laughs> Bed, Bath, and Beyond and to look for the uprising of compulsive grasping and greed. <laughs> 30 minutes of walking meditation in Bed, Bath, and Beyond. And then we met together and we we compared notes, and it, it was fairly intense. I mean, I had never been to Bed Bath & Beyond before that, and it's, uh, it's when you walk in, I think when you walk in, there are like 40 different kinds of garbage cans. <laughs> yeah, and it's, it was overwhelming, and I found especially that I was getting interested in things that before I walked in there, I had no, no knowledge even existed <laughs> or that I had any, any need, a need for. Things like um, an extra platform to put on a television set to give more space to hold something. 
And I think that you can see by, by that example that it's actually, there's a lot of social pressure. Need I say that, that to, that conditions us to want. You know, what is advertising but making us want things that previously we didn't want. So it's very thick in the culture, you know, and it's uh, sometimes taken to be the basis of our national well-being, which is, again, it's quite delusive because what we found when we looked closely at greed, we found that it had certain qualities. For one thing, it was extremely self-centered. There was very little ability to be aware or even take seriously the needs of others. That when we're right in the middle of greed, it's all about me and there's very little room for others, which already is going to incline us towards um, acting in ways that may cause suffering because we're not taking the needs of others into account. There also was, we found, when we really look carefully at greed, a lack of attendance to consequences. It was more like, I want this now and I will give up my thinking about what consequences are. And we can actually look and study that when we, when we look at uh, the quality of compulsive wanting or, or, or greed. And we can see how when we don't attend to consequences, when we're just focused on what I want, there can be a, a lot of actions which lead to suffering. When we don't attend to the needs of others and so forth. So it's something really to look at. And in terms of the, the ways of working with um, that kind of compulsive greed, the first tool that we use is mindfulness, really to study it. You know, and some people here and I've heard in the last few days, have been looking at the way that there may be some, com some kind of very strong inclination to pleasure that arises, whether it's in relation to food or sights or staring at lizards or whatever. That, 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 uh, and again, there's not, it's not that there's anything wrong with pleasure, but it's more like an exploration. Uh, you know, the problem is the compulsivity you know, I had a group I work with, I told, that, I told them that there was no problem with pleasure and, and that, you know, we could, uh, you know, we could eat chocolate at our meditation sessions and the problem wouldn't be in the eating of chocolate, it would be in the attachment and the grasping. And they said, let's try it out. <laughs> <laughs> so, so we actually did that, but it's, very, it's actually very interesting. It's very interesting to study uh, and, and we're really invited to do that. We can do that in our, in our meals. We can study when does simply the mindfulness of pleasure become grasping after pleasure. That's, that's the uh, dividing line we want to study. What are the consequences to my consciousness when there's that kind of compulsive grasping? What really, what, what do I find when I look carefully? And there's, there's a way in, in the traditional teachings uh, there were, there were particularly in, the, um, in some of the teachings of the Buddha and the kind of practices that he uh, gave for uh, monks and nuns, it was actually, there were actually counter practices that were suggested to offset the attachment to, to pleasure. It might be to see a person that we are very uh, drawn to, that we're, that we're grasping towards, and see that person as a skeleton see that person as someone who will eventually die or to, to look at the, uh, to look at the um, unpleasant qualities of the body. That's sometimes done. That's probably more, uh, you know, more appropriate in that, in that kind of context. But it's something that in a, if there's a very strong kind of grasping, sometimes we can balance it by just looking, by noticing that there also are unpleasant qualities connected with things. One of the ways that we counteract uh, greed and a kind of a compulsive grasping is by, is by generating further generosity or gratitude by lead, that leads to a kind of a settling of the mind. And so actually uh, giving gifts to others may take us away from that self-centered quality. So there can, be, there can be that sense in daily life of using uh, the giving of gifts as a way to counteract any kind of self-centered or compulsive grasping. 
sometimes we can, through our mindfulness, try to see if there's something that's beneath the grasping. Sometimes we use, as we know very well, we use that kind of compulsive desire, compulsive grasping to cover over something that we don't want to look at. And so sometimes we can either reflect or through mindfulness actually see, is there something deeper? And I think we know that in kind of some of the uh, stereotypical ways when we find ourselves just having had a difficult, I don't know, conversation on the phone with someone and five seconds, ten seconds later we find ourselves walking like a little bit like a robot towards the refrigerator. Is that a common experience that people know of using food or the pleasure of food as a way to cover over something so we don't, sometimes so we don't feel it. And so really to look to see what's beneath the of any kind of compulsive desire. In the uh, commentaries that exist in the Buddhist tradition, there there often are long lists of antidotes to these five difficult energies. And it's kind of interesting that there is this collected wisdom about how to work with these difficult energies. And actually what what is appropriate for every one of the difficult energies uh, typically are mentioned two, uh, two things to do. One is to have noble friendship, basically to have good friends, and the other is to have suitable conversation. And so you'll see that having uh, basically noble, uplifting, helpful friends is taken to be a way to work with any of these, and it's taken to be always helpful. You know, some of you know this uh, famous passage where the, where the Buddha was asked by his attendant Ananda, Uh, Buddha, I think that uh, good friends are really important on the spiritual path. They're at least half of it. And the Buddha said, don't say that, Ananda. Good friends are the entirety of the spiritual path. They're the whole of the spiritual path. And in a way, it's the way that we, when we work together here as a community, we really support each other. And I think you may have felt in the groups how uh, you could really learn from the sincerity of the other people or from the uh, some of what they were working with or trying. So in here and in daily life, that coming back to uh, might be to just be with friends who might, whose example might inspire us in various ways. Uh, people who might, be, uh, might have worked with that issue themselves. So the second, the second difficult quality is the quality uh, of a kind of compulsive aversion. The first is this compulsive grasping. The second is the compulsive pushing away. So I thought I'd read um, another passage from the Book of Qualities, and this is about anger. And again, this is not not exactly synonymous with uh, compulsive aversion, but close. There's this little bug that comes here when I give talks. That's crawling, <laughs> crawling around here. <laughs> but there might be a, some history there. Right? We don't know. This, this is the sort of thing the Buddha would talk about in discourse. And that that bug three lifetimes ago was something or other. <laughs> but right now I don't know. <laughs> so, anger sharpens knives at the local supermarket on the last Wednesday of the month. His face is scarred from adolescent battles. He has never been very popular. His reputation as a fighter dates back to seventh grade. Children never understand how anger arrives at the house just in time for dinner. Mm. We never hear him ring the bell. All of a sudden he is there. As soon as my son hears his footsteps, he is running for shelter underneath the twin bed in the guest room. Anger is trying to gain truth's friendship and respect. These are actually pretty deep, so there's a lot here. Anger is a meticulous reporter. He is accurate about details and insistent about the facts. He never lies, but he rarely understands anyone else's point of view. It is true that sharp knives work better than dull knives. They are also safer. A cut from a dull knife takes a long time to heal. However, if you have not used a sharp blade for a while, it is easy to hurt yourself. 
If you must ask anger how to sharp to sh- if you must ask anger to sharpen your bread knife, be careful how you handle it. He is not the only knife sharpener in town anymore. They're probably worthy of further study <laughs> that, that, that account. But the you know what we are really uh, looking for is this quality of when the aversion becomes compulsive. And again, it can be sometimes we may have noticed it in the, in the hall when we're, again, we have this, uh, sometimes we develop aversion uh, against another member of our, of our uh, retreat, you know, that we can uh, uh, not like someone's making of noise or not like the way they dress or some people sometimes uh, not so much in this retreat, but at, at times people uh, chronically come in late. And for certain kinds of meditators, that becomes the basis for what in our subculture is called a Vipassana vendetta. <laughs> the other side of it is called the Vipassana romance. And either of them, the Vipassana romance is linked up with the compulsive desire where people can... Uh, develop this very strong connection and go through in silence a, a complete uh, courting ritual, leading, you know, sometimes actually leading to the conclusion that it actually won't work and kind of not only getting connected but also breaking up all in the same, <laughs> all in the same uh, period of time. And the same thing with the, the vendetta. It can, we can have this sense that this person is if this person wasn't doing this thing or having that appearance, my um, concentration would completely fall into place. And it's, um, has anyone experienced even a little bit of this here? Okay. We, won't, we won't ask for names, but, but, it's, but it's very common. And it's partly just to see that quality of when, of when that develops and what it's like. It's that quality that we that I think is, is there. Some of you know the Rolling Stones song, Paint It Black. Does anyone know that song? It's a song which, which, is, which, is, which points to that sense of um, days in which everything is unpleasant, even if it's actually pretty good, where my mind is just such that I have aversion towards everything. You know, um, sometimes for me it happens when not just one thing, but three or four things in a row uh, go wrong on the same day. I remember this happened once when I was developing a talk on equanimity. And, and, and I think you know, it happened like I, I went to the doctors for an appointment. I had to wait an hour and a half. Uh, and then I was late to an appointment with a friend because of the doctor's appointment. And then uh, I was scheduled to have dinner with another friend and she canceled at the last moment. And I think I painted it a black, so to speak, or had that kind of aversion. It was just, it was that kind of day where everything seems like it's conspiring against any kind of lasting happiness. And we may have, have felt that sometimes even, even here. And I'm, I'm, being, I'm making a little bit uh, light of it, you know, with, because I think actually that... Um, Having a sense of humor and spaciousness can be can be actually a tool sometimes for working with either of those, you know. And it's uh, when I was doing my uh, clown training, one of the things that we did actually was to take some really really difficult circumstances or, or situations and try to imagine them as uh, part of the story that's the basis for a clown skit, which actually means taking something difficult and bringing it into uh, a humorous perspective, which gives, gives us a certain amount of space. Because a lot of what humor is about is spaciousness, at least the kind of humor that doesn't have someone else or some group as a, as a scapegoat. So it's, it's, it's something that we can study, that, that kind of aversion. Obviously, it man- can manifest in all sorts of ways. It can manifest as aversion towards a sensation in the body, aversion towards an emotion, aversion towards um, what someone else is saying or doing or wearing or the way another person's acting. It can be, it can, it can uh, take the shape of a kind of self-judgment or judgment of others. One of the main ways that this occurs is, is when we judge ourselves. 
And again, it can be very harsh, and sometimes we find that happening in, in the context of retreats. It can, in its extremes, go into hatred. And obviously, a kind of uh, unchecked aversion can be the basis for very horrible conflicts and wars. And in some way, an inability to deal with that kind of compulsive aversion is, is at least uh, part of the basis for, for war and for violence. That there, and so it's actually very, very uh, important. And we, in a, in a sense, when we can work with this, we, we, in a sense, can become peacemakers, starting with ourselves in terms of this practice, but also learning how to work with it skillfully um, in an outer way. And so how to, um, how to, how to respond? What kind, of, what kind of ways of working with compulsive aversion are skillful if they occur in the context of the retreat or more broadly in, in daily life. And so, again, uh, mindfulness is always going to be a valuable resource. And just to know that there's aversion happening makes a huge difference. Just in a similar way, just to know that there's desire, just that naming of it. In a way, when we name something, we break a trance. We break a trance. That's why some, many of you have found the, the labeling, the use of labels for looking at repetitive uh, patterns of mind, extremely helpful because when we name something, it's, it's like we break, we break a kind of trance. Um, it's sometimes said that when the slave names the situation, it's the beginning of freedom. When there's a naming of the situation and the dynamics, when, that, when there's that kind of consciousness, mindfulness about the situation, it's the beginning of freedom. And again, we can work with uh, ways of seeing sometimes what's beneath the aversion. We can, we can look, uh, we can use reflection, and we can use a kind of mindfulness to see, is there something, is there something that's beneath this aversion? Is there something that I'm feeling more deeply? And in, in working in that way, we can, um, we can sometimes see that my aversion is actually uh, grounded in a certain kind of frustration or a certain kind of anger, which I'm not in touch with, or a certain kind of self-judgment. And so sometimes, just by staying with the phenomenon, we can, we can sometimes notice what's um, what's deeper, what's beneath the surface. One of the one of the techniques that we can sometimes use is to really, when there are repetitive patterns of compulsive aversion, it's to bring sometimes to bring our attention, if we can, to the body. And just to listen and see if there's something beneath the surface there. Just to listen, to, be, to bring awareness to the body and, and just listen. Because sometimes there's something that's, that's driving the aversion. Sometimes it comes out of not wanting to be with something, not wanting to be with sadness or pain. Um, the, the writer James Baldwin said this, I imagine one of the reasons that people cling to their hate so stubbornly is because they sense once hate is gone, they will be forced to deal with pain. It's a very powerful statement. Once the hate is gone, they will be forced to deal with a certain kind of pain. And I think that's very powerful on the social level, that a great deal of the hatred is a kind of displaced um, uh, emotion that comes because people do, can't really be with their own pain. We, sometimes we call that scapegoating. You know, that somehow, if I hate, I won't have to feel what's there. And so it can be quite, quite powerful. Another antidote to aversion is to go to metta. And metta is actually uh, an antidote that's often very helpful, but particularly when there's some kind of uh, um, kind of constricted quality of the mind. Because what happens with compulsive desire or aversion is that we lose some touch with our underlying wisdom and our underlying love. And sometimes if we can actually know that, 
and call forth the metta, it can be very, very helpful. It's something that I personally do if I find myself in any kind of, often if I find myself in a kind of emotional distress, sometimes I might wake up in the middle of the night and I say, oh my God, about some situation. And, and often what I do there, there, basically when there's some distress, there are basically two options. One is to go with mindfulness, if, particularly if there's balance. But if there's not such good balance, or if we're feeling there's a lot of distress, we can just go to metta, and it actually shifts the energy. And I do that typically if I wake up in the middle of the night and feeling the weight of something. I will often go right to metta, and it's a beautiful antidote that really can shift the energy. And I'll talk more about that uh, probably tomorrow morning, because what we're doing partly tonight, you see, is that we're starting to bring in attention to mindfulness of states of mind and heart. And we'll give more instructions on that tomorrow morning. Another way, another antidote is to actually work with concentration. That the, the concentrated mind actually is able to go, in a sense, beyond all the difficult energies. And so sometimes we can actually go into concentration and the aversion will fade. And so if there's a lot of concentration, we can sometimes go with, it might be just to return to the breath, and we can sometimes uh, find that that shifts the aversion. And so you can see that there, there are two basic strategies. One is to actually use mindfulness to see deeply into a difficult energy, and the other is to shift the energy to use a kind of antidote. And it's really helpful to be aware that either of those options are always available. Mindfulness in the long run is going to lead to the insight, which ultimately uproots the confusion. But, the, but often in the short run, it's very helpful to use an antidote to go to metta or to just shift the energy in some way. Sometimes it might be as little as I'm feeling really constricted. There's a lot of aversion. Just take a walk. Just to shift in some ways, to shift the energy can be very skillful. And I'm sure many of us have our own little... Uh, toolbox of how to work with these things, but it's helpful sometimes to summarize them. The third difficult energy is translated as sloth and torpor, translated in the Victorian times, and uh, very few of us run around telling ourselves that we're feeling sloth and torpor, but this is what's come in, in the lineage of Buddhist Dharma talks to be the name for the third difficult energy, sloth and torpor. In our common language, it refers to sleepiness, to feeling low energy, and so forth. And it's something that manifests, as we know, quite commonly on retreats, particularly at the beginning of retreats. Interestingly, um, this quality of sleepiness and sloth and torpor, of the five difficult energies, it's the one that stays the longest in our spiritual development. It's pretty interesting. Some of you know that there actually are stages of awakening or stages of enlightenment in the Buddhist tradition. And it's said that at each of the stages, some of the, they're actually particularly the first, the third, and the fourth stage, certain of these um, difficult energies just don't really appear again. The one which only, there's only one of them which requires full enlightenment to go away. And that's sloth and torpor. <laughs> so just so you know, if you're feeling sleepy, you could still be incredibly evolved as a spiritual being. <laughs> Which goes away first? The first that goes away is doubt. Yeah. But the first, this, this is the, you'll have to check it out yourself. But, the, but the, the first that goes away is the sense of doubt. When, when there's this first deep glimpse, uh, we might say, of the sacred, a quality of doubt is no longer present. And the others, the... Uh, the other three, the compulsive desire, the compulsive aversion, and the restlessness are said to go away at the third stage of awakening. So what that means is that you could, we, could have a, we could have a discussion, we could have a special spirit rock panel discussion among the most highly evolved people in our community. And if they weren't at full awakening, they could be sitting there full of compulsive desire, aversion, or restlessness, or they could be just falling asleep there right on the stage. 
and there would be, and, and we would not necessarily take that to be a problem. I mean, maybe in some ways we might, but not in terms of those mind states, not in terms of saying those mind states should not appear. So sloth and torpor manifest as sleepiness, lack of energy. Well, let me read, let me read this uh, one from Ruth Gendler. And I'm reading one a little close to it, it's boredom. Does anyone really know what boredom is like? He rarely goes anywhere with at least, with, without at least one of his friends. He can't stand to be alone. On Sunday afternoons, he goes to the bar on the corner and drinks dark beer with futility, rage, and anxiety. They all have such strong personalities. In conversations with that bunch, boredom tends to get lost. It is not that he doesn't say anything. It's just that what he says never sounds as interesting or vivid or memorable. If you listen carefully, you will see that he actually has some very good ideas. He simply lacks the energy to carry them out. And so the sloth and torpor manifests as, it can manifest as boredom. It can manifest as lack of energy, a kind of fogginess, a lack of concentration. Again, extremely common on the first day or two or more of retreats. How many people have experienced that during this retreat? So most of us. And it also can appear, I mentioned, it can appear as the, the quality in loving kindness practice of the words getting muddled. You know, like the one that I gave of, instead of saying, may I be happy and contented, I said, may I be happy and cemented. You know, or may, one, I found myself also saying, instead of may I be free from harm, saying may I be free from form. <laughs> and there, you know, when we look to the causes, it's as we, as we really study this quality of sleepiness or low energy, it actually is a very uh, fascinating uh, area to study because we can know that sometimes we come to a retreat and there, there is a genuine tiredness, a physical tiredness. We may have um, gone to great lengths just to come to the retreat and we may come here quite tired. And sometimes we can know that and we can know that the sleepiness is related to physical tiredness. More commonly though, the sleepiness or the lack of energy isn't so much about physical needs, but it's more about getting used to this environment and really a kind of uh, settling in that occurs. And in that way, in that, in that context, the, um, the sleepiness or the lack of energy may actually be, be related to an imbalance of concentration and energy. That we may have uh, a fair amount of concentration, but not so much energy. And that will result in a quality of mind we sometimes call sinking mind, which is somewhat foggy and not very alert. We can also uh, be just be quite sleepy from um, getting, getting used to the positions, getting used to the posture. So what to, what to do when there's sleepiness? I'll give a few uh, responses and antidotes. Again, the first tool is mindfulness. It's to really be aware. It's to name that there's sleepiness, to name that there may be a, a kind of sloth and torpor, to, note it, to name it. And we can also start to study it, which is actually very, very interesting. We can actually be there with the sleepiness and make, do our, uh, make our best effort to actually see what it's like. How does it work in the mind? How does it work in the body? What is this like? What's the... What's the flavor of it? How does it change? Sometimes when we study that closely, we can notice it changing in a very short moment. And it's pretty interesting sometimes that the, the sleepiness can be there like a cloud when it's not due to physical causes. And when we actually pay attention, sometimes it can actually just lift and go away. And when suddenly we can be in very deep concentration all in a minute or two. And it's quite interesting. And, and we can actually study using mindfulness the, that quality of sleepiness. It's harder to do that, isn't it? It's harder to be mindful when there's sleepiness or low energy, but we can do that. To the extent that, that the quality of sloth and torpor is related to low energy, we can do things which increase the energy. And so it can be very helpful 
to, for example, if we're feeling that, in the walking meditation to do more brisk walking, to really uh, to go back and forth, to walk quickly. It might be to do uh, yoga, because sometimes we know that that sense of sleepiness or the, the energy feeling low is sometimes not so much that the energy is low, but that it's stuck. You know, we know that especially when we uh, go to a meeting all day and you know, are with whatever, fluorescent lights and come back at the end of the day and feel the energy feels really stuck. And in that context, sometimes it can be very helpful just to do something physical, to do some stretching, some yoga. And in this context here, that can be very, very beneficial really to, to shift in that way. We can also uh, work with our posture. We can sit up straight. We can take some deep breaths. If necessary, if we're feeling quite sleepy, we can stand up. And those of you who've been to retreats know that sometimes, um, quite often, people will stand for certain sittings. And in, in um, Asia, standing is actually a meditation posture that one might do just like we're doing sitting or walking. People might stand for 45 minutes and just be aware of the standing, of the posture. Another uh, way to help the quality of sleepiness is to be moderate in eating, to really be careful not to eat too much. Um, Jack Kornfield tells the story of when he was feeling very sleepy, his teacher had him sit on the edge of a well that went down 50 feet. You might do your equivalent of that. (laughs) Uh, I'm, uh, but it's in some way to, to do that which brings about alertness. It's sometimes said that another antidote to sleepiness is reflecting on the fact that we all will die. Sometimes that can actually cut through a certain kind of lethargy just to remember um, for some of us the urgency of what we're doing. And as with all of the difficult energies, it's all suitable conversation and noble friendship is taken to be a great antidote to being sleepy. In the context of the retreat, that will probably mean you'll have to either talk to me or Ruby. (laughs) So the the fourth quality, uh, the fourth difficult energy is restlessness. The quality of, in this case, it's actually in some sense the opposite of uh, sleepiness or sloth and torpor. Here, there's too much energy and it's not contained within our bodies. And often it's actually linked to an imbalance of concentration and energy the other way, where there's so much energy, but the concentration can't hold it. We can't hold the energy. So let me read one passage. This This is the quality of worry. Worry has written the the definitive work on nervous habits. She etches lines on people's foreheads when they are not paying attention. She She makes lists of everything that could go wrong while she is waiting for the train. She is sure she left the stove on and the house is going to explode in her absence. When she makes love, her mind is on the failure rates and health hazards of various methods of birth control. The drug companies won't worry to test their new tranquilizers, but they don't understand what she knows too well. There is no drug that can ease her pain. She is terrified of the unknown. So again, it's very deep, Ruth. <laughs> and so um, we, can, we can notice that quality of restlessness in a few different ways. Sometimes it's the restlessness of the body. There can sometimes be the body that doesn't want to sit still. Sometimes it can be energetic. We, we, we are kind of moving all around and we can't, we can't really uh, sit in a stable way. Sometimes that energetic restlessness is connected with actually some kind of influx of knowledge and, and uh, sometimes it, it can actually reflect the beginning of a growth spurt, as it were. And what needs to happen over time is to really integrate and stabilize that energy. So it's not necessarily a problem, but it it can feel like one. It can manifest as a lot of thinking, a very overactive mind, 
and it can, it can manifest as anxiety or worry as well. And that, that would be the quality of restlessness. So what to do with restlessness? Again, uh, mindfulness is always a tool. Mindfulness is always a helpful tool. Just to name it sometimes is helpful. It's like we, we name, ah, there's restlessness, and then the light bulb goes on and we say, well, what was, Donald listed six antidotes for ways to work with uh, restlessness. What are they? And that gets activated once we name it. So just the naming of any of these difficult energies is actually probably 50% of the work here or in daily life. Really, really crucial. It's because what, what keeps us confused is this quality almost of being in a trance, being locked in where there's not mindfulness, there's not consciousness. We're cut off from our, our wisdom. And so the mindfulness is very, very crucial. Another way to work with it is to summon more concentration. That sometimes, again, the, the restlessness of the body or the restlessness of energy is something that can really find um, an antidote when there's more concentration. So we may do things which develop concentration, be more fully with the breath. Uh, sometimes we can use the techniques of counting the breath. You know, counting in, out, one, in, out, two, and so forth. Techniques that I, meant, I think I've mentioned here. Um, but we can use that generally to develop more concentration. We can do the walking meditation and really stay contained in the walking path. And this can help with concentration. We can keep our body posture uh, straight. That this can sometimes help with that. Um, sometimes it's helpful if, it's, if the restlessness is really strong just to take sometimes a walk can help shift the energy sometimes. But basically what we're looking for in restlessness is really a way to um, um, really to contain it and build it and, and really and notice it. Um, sometimes it can be helpful to um, reflect on the um, teachings in, in the commentaries that give this set of uh, antidotes. It's said that reflecting on the teachings is very, very helpful. That reflecting on the nature of impermanence, that this will come and go, reflecting on the um, roots of suffering somehow settles the mind, particularly when there's some anxiety or worry. It's also said that being present with those who are more mature or those who are mature spiritually, or we might say mature psychologically, can actually, this is more if it's in daily life, but it's somehow that when we're with other people, probably uh, being with this group here, to the extent that there's a lot of development of mindfulness, I think could, could help in a certain way with the restlessness. But the, the classical antidote is to be with people whose, maybe whose energy is balanced, who have a certain quality of equanimity or peacefulness or rest. It's like we would be with them and we get cooled out a little bit. And as always, noble friendship and suitable conversation is, is, always, is always appropriate. The last of the difficult energies is doubt. And it's often said that this is uh, the most difficult one in, in many ways because it can really lead to a paralysis where we stop paying attention and stop practicing. So let me read the quality of doubt. Doubt camped out in the living room last week. I told him that we had too many house guests. He doesn't listen. He keeps saying the same thing again and again and again until I completely forget what I'm trying to tell him. Doubt is demanding and not very generous, but I appreciate his honesty. That's a little elliptical, isn't it? <laughs> so, <laughs> so thank you, Ruth, for those, those, those qualities. So doubt is, doubt can be doubt about how I'm doing, my capacity for practice. It can be about, it can be about this whole approach of mindfulness. Why should I just be mindful? Where does it lead anyway? Maybe I should just go back to drugs. 
<laughs> or maybe I should, maybe I should drop this Buddhism and, and go back to another tradition. And it really is this quality, it, it can be, as in the passage by Ruth Kendler, it can be this repetitive thoughts. It can be a doubt about um, one's own suitability, one's own capacity for mindfulness. How many people felt some doubt about your own capacity in the last two days? So it's quite, it can be quite strong. It can manifest as self-judgment. It can manifest really as um, um, kind of playing into our deep judgments of ourselves. Something is basically wrong with me because many of us carry that kind of self-judgment uh, in our lives. In fact, I think all of us carry something like that. And when we come into a difficult stretch of practice, we can sometimes do something which in a way uh, calls up that, that kind of deep self-judgment. It can be quite cruel and mean and, and um, we have to know that it's there. We have to know that it's present. We have to name it. We have to see that, it, see that it's there. So as with the other difficult energies, there are a number of possible antidotes and responses. Mindfulness, crucial to be able to actually to notice uh, there is doubt present. Again, it can call forth our responsiveness. And this in daily life and in practice is going to be a completely uh, necessary tool just to be able to name something. And naming it again, it stops the trance and it, it really calls forth our resources. The traditional antidote to doubt was faith. You know, particularly when we doubt the practice or we doubt what we're doing. It would be to, to go to uh, something which develops faith. It could be to talk with someone. It could be to read something. It could be to reflect on a particular principle. If I'm feeling doubt about mindfulness, it might be to read something. Maybe in many ways that the talks are designed in some ways to address those kind of doubts, to give some, some clarity that can be helpful. You know, it can be, or it might be to remember our deeper experiences, sometime, somehow to call upon our own resources that really can, in a way, uh, work through the doubt. And sometimes it's, it's really to, um, in terms of where there's personal doubt, it's really, to, it might be to, again, be with a friend or a teacher that can really help to cut through that kind of self-judgment. It might be to do metta towards oneself. If one, if one is finding oneself really judging oneself harshly, loving kindness is a beautiful antidote because it can really remind us sometimes of our own beauty and wonder and take us out of that kind of trance of uh, self-judgment. It's, it's a, which is a very powerful one. I've been working with a group um, for about the last three and a half years on the theme of working with judgments, uh, monthly. It, it, it came unexpectedly when I did a day-long here. And after the day-long, which was pretty well attended, people gathered and said, we want to continue. We want to continue working on this. And it's really the only time that that's happened in that way, doing different topics on day-long focus on wisdom, loving kindness, working with speech and so forth. It's the judgment that seems to be a deep, um, a deep um, issue for many of us. And I think it's something that actually, I believe is, is stronger in this culture by far than it was at the time of the Buddha. So the Buddha doesn't talk a whole lot about that quality of judgment, even though he points when he talks about metta towards the, the quality of, um, of the antidote to that. And, and there, was, there was this um, time when the Dalai Lama came about uh, uh, 25 years ago, and he was one of his first trips to visit with Westerners, and he was um, taking questions from people. And the, he took questions on pieces of paper, and someone said on the piece of paper, and I, I was, it was at Insight Meditation Society, and I was, I was sitting a long retreat then. And the Dalai Lama 
uh, read the question. The question said, I don't feel like I am deserving of love. What should I do? And the Dalai Lama was really confused about this because he wasn't so familiar with the dynamics of self-judgment in Western culture. And he went back and forth with the translator three or four times. They're talking, the Dalai Lama talks both in English and Tibetan, and he went back and forth. And eventually, after about three or four minutes, he just came out in English and said, you are wrong. (laughs) You deserve love. Next question. <laughs> and there was something that was really strong about that. And, but it was, it was also, I think he was beginning to get educated about some, some ways that our minds go. And, and it, it can lead into the, that, uh, that self-judgment can lead to doubt. And so the, you know, the antidotes would be the loving kindness, would be the mindfulness, would be the looking deeper, would be to really reflect on... Um, one's good qualities and so forth. But, it, but recognizing that for some of us, that's a very deep area. And it's something that we can, I think I may, I may talk about that further in, in um, other talks. And so as we work with these um, difficult energies, in a sense, we become more familiar with them. They become less invaders and more forces that we're familiar with. In a sense, as we get to know them better, they can become a little bit like friends. For them, they might be relatives that are sometimes difficult to be around, but we know that they're kind of kin, <laughs> if, I can, if I can say that. And, and we notice, oh, doubt. Oh, you're here again. Welcome. We must talk. <laughs> and we can have that, that sense of not so much this is an emergency, but in the naming and the using of the resources, the antidotes, we can actually develop a way to work with the, uh, each of these uh, difficult energies. We might say, each of these difficult visitors. And we can actually, as we work with them more, several things develop. First of all, we have a lot of familiarity with the particular difficult visitors. We get to know them. It really builds a certain kind of compassion when we find those in other people. If we really have studied each of these difficult energies, we can actually be wonderful friends to other people. And we become, we go from being the problem to becoming the antidote in a way. We turn up on the antidote list for other people's difficult energies. And we also develop a a faith that grows stronger in the workability of difficult experiences, which is really crucial for this practice. That we can, and we develop a kind of faith, oh, I've had these difficult experiences, but they're workable. And that's really one of the great uh, gifts of this practice, that it helps make more and more of our experiences workable. Not easy necessarily, not what we want necessarily, but workable, particularly in the context of using the wisdom teachings, the heart teachings, and using the resources of community. And so I think I'll end here by, um, by inviting us to, in the practice for the rest of today and tomorrow to, if any of those difficult energies come up, to name them and then see if you can work with one of the ways to respond either through mindfulness or finding some kind of antidote. And we'll have some time tomorrow morning after the first sitting to talk further about any of this. So thank you very much. So let's just sit quietly for a minute or two. Just letting be present what, have, what may have felt helpful. Any insights you may have had. And any intentions for applying some of this to your practice.
So again, thank you for your attention. We have about uh, 25 minutes of walking. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.